0: Lecture notes, Hobbes. The assigned textbook reading for this week is Bond, chapter 10 and note that we will not be covering Spinoza and Leibniz so you can skip sections 10.5 and 10.6. Hobbes, the state of nature. Consider the following moral rules. You should not cheat on exams. You should be honest with your friends and family members. It's wrong to steal even small objects. Presumably you think that one, or maybe all, of these rules is correct, i.e. you think that people, yourself included, should act as the rule directs. But if true, what makes these rules true? Where did the rule come from? Social contract theory offers one compelling answer to this question. It says that moral rules and principles come from us, from human beings. It says that moral rules are rules that we agree upon together for the purposes of living together cooperatively. In other words, imagine that we just dump down a group of people in a new world where there are no pre-established rules or norms. Philosophers call this a state of nature. You can can think of the state of nature in Garden of Eden terms, i.e. at the beginning of human life before the establishment of anything like a modern state, Or you can imagine the state of nature in apocalyptic terms as a world in which governments and society as we know it have totally collapsed. What would life be like in the state of nature, do you think? Would you prefer to live in the state of nature? And most crucially, would you have more or less freedom in the state of nature? Personally, I think the outlook would be bleak. Think of what happens in states where there's war and government collapses. People hoard food, take up arms to protect what's theirs, board up their homes to keep out neighbors and looters alike. It's an all-out fight to protect yourself and your family and grab whatever you need to survive, because if you don't take what you need, someone else will take it from you. Hobbes generally concurs with this negative assessment about human beings. According to him, life and the state of nature would be a chaotic disaster. Each person would be out fighting for their own interests and we would be pitted against everyone else. He famously characterized the state of nature as a state of war, and says that life in the state of nature would be nasty, brutish, and short. All in all, Hobbes thinks we'd be eager to get out of the state of nature as fast as possible. But how? In order to get ourselves out, Hobbes thinks that we make deals with each other, and with the state, like the government. Because agreeing to terms of peaceful cooperation would be advantageous for everyone. This is known as the social contract. So part B, the social contract. Before we get to the social contract, however, I want to back up a little. Hobbes views humans as egoists, which means he thinks that humans by nature are always looking out for themselves first. Although I emphasized his view of human nature as rational, Aristotle, for example, held a very different view. In addition to arguing that humans have a rational nature, Aristotle also thought that humans were by nature social and political, designed to live cooperatively together. Hobbes had a very different take on this. He doesn't see us as predisposed by nature towards a life of cooperation with others, but rather sees us predisposed by nature to live a life of fear and anxiety driving protection of ourselves above all else. Thus, for Hobbes, the number one law, and law in quotation marks, we all follow is something like... I want to survive. In the state of nature, survival requires war. We have to constantly be on alert for others who might harm us or take what we need. But this is a bad way to survive because sooner or later you're going to lose a fight. Even if you have a lot of resources or a lot of physical strength, sooner or later a large group might gang up against you. Thus, Hobbes thinks that our fundamental drive towards survival will actually incline us to seek peace, and furthermore, to give up some of the freedom we have in the state of nature for the sake of security and peace. So imagine we're in the apocalypse, and it's a state of nature. And everyone in this class gets together and says, Okay, this fighting this war, this desperate race to survive, this is horrible. There's got to be a better way. Let's all cut a deal with each other. None of us are going to steal each other's resources or harm each other. This will be a benefit to everyone in the group. It'll make life better for all of us. Agreed? Can you think of a problem? If you've ever been required to do group work in school, you might already have an idea of a potential problem. What's going to guarantee that people actually follow through on this agreement? For example, Say that in our apocalyptic state of nature, I've acquired a nice apple tree, and part of our new agreement is that you're not going to steal all of my apples. But why not just tell me, yep, you agree, no stealing each other's stuff, and then sneak in and steal my apples anyways now that I've let my guard down. After all, if our fundamental drive is to protect ourselves and survive, we're always going to be tempted to break the contract or agreement to benefit ourselves. This is where the government comes in. Hobbes' famous work on political theory is titled Leviathan, and a Leviathan, like a giant being or monster, is a reference to the government. It's not exactly a cheery and mellow outlook. Hobbes wrote, There must be some coercive power to compel men equally to the performance of their covenants. In other words, we need someone with force to back up the rules. So imagine I say, In this class, the rule is no plagiarizing. You get a zero if you plagiarize. But I never actually follow through and fail a student for plagiarizing. Eventually, students are going to figure out that the rule is a joke. There's no coercive power behind the rule that compels you to follow it. The same thing is true with a social contract. Hobbes says we need someone to enforce the contract or covenant and dole out punishment in order to ensure that people will actually follow the rules. And you guessed it, that someone is the government. In fact, this is actually an important point of difference between Hobbes and later social contract theorists. Hobbes thought that the social contract was not actually a contract between citizens, but was really a contract between the citizens and the government. He furthermore thought that the government would need to have absolute power. It's easy to skim over how strong and outlandish this view is, so let me emphasize. Hobbes was saying that when we sign the social contract, we're signing over all of our rights, and the governing power has total authority to determine what's just. Probably none of you are very sympathetic to this view, but it's still important to emphasize how uniquely modern Hobbes' political theory was. Some people actually argue that Hobbes gave rise to all modern political theory. Although we haven't talked much about the political views of the philosophers we've studied up until now, none of them viewed the state as an essentially human and practical institution. Some people thought the state and by the state, I mean government should be based on eternal principles like Plato. Some thought the correct form of government should be determined according to human nature, Aristotle, the medieval tradition tended to think of government as like institutions and individuals that are ordained by God to rule over the rest of us. Hobbes on the other hand, does not think the king has authority that comes from God or anything like that. Hobbes says that the king's authority comes from the contract between the king and the subjects. They sign over their rights for the sake of increased peace and security. So. Even though you probably think Hobbes' specific views about government authority and absolute power are way too strong, Hobbes nonetheless paved the way for later and more democratic understandings of the social contract by arguing that the king's authority is grounded in a contract with the citizens, as opposed to a direct mandate from God. In other words, morality on Hobbes' view stems from our solution to a practical problem. Morality is a human creation. It's not something we just make up on a whim. It's not something that's up to you personal, personally. But morality is our so- solution to the practical problem of needing to live semi-peacefully together. A different view of morality you might say that moral rules come from God. We ought to act the way God tells us to act. Or maybe morality comes from a God-ordained king. The way we ought to behave is how the king tells us to behave. Or maybe morality is known through reason, like a reason intuits or works out some brute truth about how we're supposed to act. But on Hobbes' view, moral rules are not given to us by royalty, discovered by reason, or handed down from God. Morality comes from the social contract, i.e. our mutual agreement with each other and our government that the government has authority to make rules and regulate our behavior for the sake of keeping things peaceful and setting us free from that nasty, brutish, and short life we'd have if we lived in a state of nature. Hopefully this reminds you a little of our unit on Plato and Glaucon's cynical thesis about justice. Remember that Glaucon argued that justice isn't intrinsically valuable, but rather claimed that justice is a compromise we make with each other because although it's great to do whatever you please, we'd rather agree to follow the rules than have other people harm us doing whatever they please. Now, although there are of course important differences in the details, Hobbes had an overall similar outlook. He's saying that justice comes from a compromise or social contract because we'd rather everyone agree to follow some ground rules that preserve peace than live in a world without rules. Before we end, I want to make an observation related to this point about freedom. One of the things that has driven me bonkers as a philosopher over the last few years of COVID world is the amount of really bad reasoning I've seen about freedom. In the last few years, I've seen people, some people, arguing that Any rule, regulation, or law is an unacceptable imposition on their freedom. Here's the problem with this. Rules also preserve freedom. For instance, right now I am free to leave my house and be at work. I'm not worried that a band of strangers might take occupancy of my house while I'm away. Even on the extremely unlikely chance that someone did break in while I'm at work, I'm confident that the legal system would intervene and remove them from my property and I'd get my house back. But notice that the property law at work here is restricting freedom. The state says that my neighbor does not have the freedom to break in and watch TV in my living room while I'm at work. The state says that someone desperate for cash does not have the freedom to come into my house and steal something valuable and sell it to get cash. In short, the state is restricting their freedom by saying they can't enter my house. But in restricting the freedom of others and telling them they can't enter my home without my permission, the state is thereby protecting my freedom. I am free to spend my day at work. I'm free to sleep calmly during the light, the night and not worry about someone walking in my home at 3 a.m. If the state wasn't restricting other people's freedom with respect to my house, I would be in a kind of state of nature, constantly paranoid and needing to guard my home and never leave, lest someone came to occupy it while I was away. So in fact, rules that restrict some freedoms are protecting and enabling the exercise of freedom in other ways. Now, this is not to say that every rule protects freedom. Of course not. But asking ourselves, should we adopt this rule, would this rule promote freedom or unduly restrict it, is very different than acting as if all rules by definition are unacceptable impositions on freedom. So instead of rejecting all rules immediately out of hand, we should be asking ourselves, what rules do we want? What kind of trade-offs might be involved in this rule? Are the trade-offs worth it? What freedoms would it restrict? What freedoms would it protect? That is a much more productive set of questions to talk about. Part D, critiques of the social contract. After George Floyd's murder in 2020 and the ensuing protests, the following video of Kimberly Jones, and the video is embedded in the Canvas lecture notes, went relatively viral. I think it's appropriate to include it here because the heart of the critique she raises is a critique of the social contract that rests at the heart of the United States. You should watch the video and hear the criticism in her own words, but in brief, she's arguing that black persons in America have no obligation to uphold the social contract because they have never been protected by the American social contract, or more precisely, that white Americans have broken their end of the American social contract from the very beginning of the country, and therefore the social contract of the country has long since been shattered and invalid. If you don't want to watch the whole thing, you can skip ahead to 5 minutes and 22 seconds where she gets to the brokenness of the contract. Note that the original version contains multiple swear words. This is like an educator's edition that beeps the swear words, but you still might want to be aware. Even if you don't agree with her analysis or the conclusions she reaches, It's still a great way to see how the idea of the social contract developed by Hobbes is still at play in the quote unquote, real world outside the philosophy classroom. And it's a concept we can use and people are using to help think about our country and our obligations to each other. Final note, there is also an optional crash course video on Hobbes and contractarianism, it's just a fancy word for the social contract, um, embedded at the very end of these lecture notes if you want something additional to watch.